Good morning. It is certainly wonderful to be here with you this morning. Those of you that are visiting with us, we're certainly thankful for your presence and pray that this service has been uplifting, that it's been encouraging to you in some way. As always, I pray the things that I present to you will be beneficial for you. Uh, This morning, we're going to do a lesson. I know that I've been going through the book of Romans, and we're going to take a little break from that as a request from my children to do a lesson that I did when they were all younger, uh, a lesson called Between the Testaments. I think my kids were too older. They were pretty small. My youngest was still in the womb, actually, when I gave this lesson. So I guess technically he heard it. Um, He probably wasn't impressed, saying, Dad, you're better than this. Uh, but nonetheless, we're going to do this lesson, and I have to tell you that the first time I did this lesson, I had to do it in two sermons. So what I've decided to do this morning is we're not having afternoon service, so I'm going to do all of your Sunday preaching in one shot this morning, okay? No, I've narrowed it down. I went through a phase when I was younger where all of my sermons seemed, needed to seem like they needed to be two-part sermons. So looking at in between the Testament with the... <clears throat> Old Testament closing out prophetically with the book of Malachi, historically with the book of Nehemiah. There's about 400 years in there between the close of the Old Testament when the curtain raises up and the book of Matthew in the New Testament. It's oftentimes referred to as the dark period because this was a time which there wasn't a prophet or any inspired writer uh, from God. And this wasn't something that should have been new. This was something that was foretold. And in Psalms chapter 74, it says, we need see not our signs, there is no more any prophet, neither is there any among us that knoweth how long. More specifically, in the book of Amos, God said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So God foretold that this would be the case, that there would be a time in which there wouldn't be any type of inspired writer or prophet. So these times were coming. And so when you look at this time period, and it's about a time period of about 400 years, and there's a lot of things that happen and changes among the Jewish culture, even in the Jewish religion. And as the it closes in the Old Testament, opens in the New Testament. There are things that you have not heard of or have seen. And I know we typically don't study everything chronologically old and new, but where did these things come from? Where did things like a feast of dedication that you read about in John chapter, John chapter 10, which not in any of the feasts in the Old Testament, where did these things come from? What do Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and all of these things that are not mentioned in the Old Testament, where did these things come from? And those things came from this time period of the 400 years of the dark times. And when you ask, you know, why study a period like this, you know, that there's not any reference to in the Bible. And I think it's not anything, it's more of an informal, informational type lesson, but it's also a faith-building lesson. You see, there's a lot of prophecies that God prophesied or had people prophesy in the Old Testament that actually came to fruition in this dark time, in this 400-year time, not just the New Testament. These things didn't just pop up in the book of Matthew and all these prophecies started being fulfilled. They were actually being fulfilled where, well before Christ came onto the scene. And so this is an opportunity to look at God's Word and go, these were prophecies that were fulfilled, and not only were they fulfilled, but they were fulfilled in great and exact detail for us to look at. And one of those prophecies, the thing that kind of bridges this entirety of the 400 years, is the prophecy in the book of Daniel chapter 2. 
Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and this is while they're in Babylonian exile, and he has this dream. And in this dream, there's a statue, and it's made of different types of metal. The head of gold, the body of silver, the thighs of bronze or brass, and the legs were iron. As they went down to the feet, it turned to clay. And Daniel interpreted this dream, and he tells him that the head was represented the Babylonian Empire, the one that Nebuchadnezzar had reign over. The Medes and Persians would be next, and the silver, the Grecian Empire, would be the bronze or the brass area. And then the iron that led into clay was the Roman Empire. Another part of this prophecy was there was a large stone hewn out of the mountain that was cast at the feet of this statue, and the statue would crumble. And Daniel interpreted that and said, in these days, in the days of the Roman Empire, essentially, that this kingdom would come that would be an everlasting kingdom that would be established by God in the days of the Roman Empire. So we have this thing that bridges this dark 400 years historically for us to look through. As we close out the Old Testament, they're under the Medo-Persian Empire, so we're already into the silver area at the close of the the Old Testament. Uh, We read that Darius had sent people back to finish building the temple. Um, The book of Esther, when Esther becomes queen, that was in the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, It closes out with Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, being made governor. So some, some religious developments that began to occur almost immediately in the Babylonian exile was that of the oral law. The oral law was a law that said that God gave two laws at Mount Sinai. He gave a written law, and then he gave an oral law. And the oral law was to be passed down from generation to generation. And this makes, really, it doesn't make any sense at all. That God would spend this time with Moses having him write down all of these 323 laws, and then he goes, but now you need to memorize all of these laws. That's a lot of work on Moses. Then Moses then had to come down from the mountain and say, here's your written law. Now, Aaron, I need to come over here and we need some, some time so I can give you this oral law that I just memorized. And the reality is, is that's, this came from within the walls of Babylonian exile. That they didn't have their law, they didn't have their temple, they didn't, what you had were people writing about God's law. Maybe practical application and things like that. You could relate it to more so in the end of the first century and second century, what they called the early church fathers, the letters that they wrote back and forth talking about God's word. Essentially a commentary. And that commentary actually became as important, if not more important in many ways, as the written law that God actually gave. And that's where all of these traditions and things came out of. And so you could see how this would cause a lot of problems. And it was in a direct contrast to what we see in the Old Testament in the book of Moses, or excuse me, in the book of Exodus. It says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. And you can see the, the conflict that this would cause right at the onset of this 400 years of dark time in which there was no prophet or inspired writer. Not long after the Medo-Persian Empire, and not long, excuse me, not long after the close of the Old Testament, we read of the Grecian Empire, which was that brass or bronze area in that statue. And Daniel represented them many times in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 2, 7, and 8. 
Alexander the Great was the leader of the Grecian Empire, and he spared Jerusalem upon his entrance into Jerusalem. And Alexander the Great was what you would call a phenomenon as far as history is concerned and empires are concerned. You read of great empires, uh, the English Empire, uh, Genghis Khan, you know, even the United States, and the rapid pace at which Alexander changed the face of the earth is absolutely amazing. In 10 years' time frame, he changed the face of the earth from not just his willingness to grow his empire, but his structure within his empire. His, the way he uh, formed his military, the political structure that he had, the rapid way in which he got people to trust him and ingratiate himself to others. And he treated the Jews with respect. As a matter of fact, when he entered into Jerusalem, he sat, made, had, had them make a sacrifice to God and then had them read about the prophecy of him overthrowing the Medo-Persian Empire in Daniel chapter 8. And he was very kind to them and actually gave them full rights of citizenship. This in turn ingratiated him to the Jews. Now, that's the great thing that Alexander the Great did. Because when he went to all these different places and overtook them, he gave them rights of citizenship. And then he put these Hellenistic centers in place, like in Alexandria, where they could spread this Greek ideas and get people to buy into the way of the Greeks. This was a problem for some of the Jews. You see, I want you to realize that Throughout the history of the Old Testament, the Jews had a problem. And that problem was idols and false gods. They continually turned to idols and false gods. After the Babylonian exile, that didn't seem to be a problem anymore. They were very zealous towards God. And their fear and some of those concern was this Hellenistic influence would cause people to turn away. They've just battled all of these years of fighting against idolatry, and now you have this Hellenistic influence coming in, and they were concerned that people would start taking on these Greek gods. Out of that, you had the Pharisees were born. They started out being named Hasidim, which means pious, and then their name was Pharisees or the separated ones. And their objective was to lead people down a path of faithfulness. They were concerned about being influenced by Greece and the Jewish culture, the, their faith all being folded into Greece, and they didn't want that to happen. Josephus refers to him in his book. Josephus was a, a Jew that was captured by the Roman Empire and documented many of things, and he refers to them. He says, they appear more religious than others and seem to interpret the laws more accurately. He writes of them in this way because they were very dedicated to the law. Not just the written law, but they were also very dedicated to the oral law. They accepted the prophets into the Hebrew Scriptures. They attached uh, as much, if not more, importance on the oral law as the written law. They believed in the existence of angels, the resurrection, and the immortality of the soul. They were very ritualistic in their worship and in their prayer. They had strict observance of the Sabbath. And it was so much to the point that they would stand around and talk about things about the Sabbath and 
weird scenarios that would come up and how you, would, how you could deal with those weird scenarios. Um, for instance, you couldn't spit on the Sabbath because the ground might think that it was about to be plowed. And therefore, since you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, you didn't want to dupe the earth into thinking that you were working. Um, a woman couldn't look into a mirror on the Sabbath for fear that she might see a gray hair. And if she saw a gray hair, she might be tempted to pluck it. And therefore, she would be working on the Sabbath. They questioned whether one could eat an egg laid on a festival day because that hen was working on a festival day and that hen had no clue what day it was, but it was working. And many scenarios in which they devised legal loopholes. What would you do if your house is burning on a Sabbath day? Well, you couldn't go and get collect your belongings and leave the house because you would be working. But if you put on layers of cloth, clothing and then left, you're okay because you're just getting dressed. How far could you travel on the Sabbath day? There was some specificity on this in the Old Testament law, and it is probably about three-fifths of a mile was as far as you could travel on the day of Sabbath. But if you on Friday, the day before, went to your friend's house or a neighbor's house down the road outside that three-fifths of a mile and took some of your belongings there, then that was your home away from home. So therefore, you could travel beyond the three-fifths of the mile. And you could see how this circle of logic just gets stranger and stranger and stranger. As a matter of fact, Christ confronted them on some of these things. In Matthew chapter 15, it says, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? And goes on to talk about how that they tr completely transgressed their responsibility to their parents and not taking care of their parents because they found a loophole to get around not taking care of their parents. He also says about them in Matthew 25, 23, but all the works they do for it to be seen of men, they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. At the time of Christ, there were about 6,000 Pharisees. And this is the reason you see so much interaction between Christ and the Pharisees in the Gospels is because the Pharisees had a lot of control. They had significant power. They were able to guide people because they had great knowledge of the law, both oral and written. So Christ had to deal with all of these hypocrisies so people could see through it and see that Christ was the one true Messiah and follow after him. So he was having to deal with, if you think about it, 400 years of Pharisee leadership amongst the people. And that's why you see so much of Christ knocking down the Pharisees and their hypocrisy when it came to the law. They were an extremely influential body of people. Alexander the Great decided that he needed to join his empire east and west, and he would have a very large wedding. He was going to marry one of the daughters of Darius, the Medo-Persian king before him, and 10,000 of his military army and everything else all took Persian brides. And they were going to marry the east and the west. He was going to centralize his power, and his central, central location of his power would be what would be common-day Iraq. He built canals, he built sewage structures, he issued coins, he had a common currency. He did things that nobody had done prior to him. 
Unfortunately, he was examining a, ca- a canal in, in Babylon, and uh, it's assumed that he was bitten by a mosquito or something, and it, he had malaria and would die. He only lived to be 33 years old, and 13 years he changed the face of the world. It's interesting to note something, though. What was he doing whenever he died? You see, the place he was trying to build was Babylon. There's a problem with that because that was a central location of his empire, but more specifically, the problem was God had destroyed, had sent for the destruction of Babylon. He had prophesied about it in Jeremiah chapter 50. In Jeremiah chapter 51, he went on to go further and say that it would never be rebuilt again. It didn't matter how great Alexander the Great was. He wasn't going to rebuild Babylon. It's not a mere coincidence that the God died doing the very thing that God said you're not going to do. So at the end of Alexander the Great, on his deathbed, they said, you know, what do we do? And all all Alexander said was pretty much the strongest should take it. So his four generals took this as an opportunity to carve up Alexander's territory. And for the next 200 some odd years, there was complete chaos in what was the main part of the world. There were wars and battles fought mostly by mercenaries that would change sides with whoever had the most money. This impacted the Jews in Jerusalem a lot because at its onset, they were part of what they called the Egyptian Ptolemies there in the green for the first hundred or so years under the reign of the Ptolemies. Alexander didn't have an heir. He only had one child and his child had some some mental disabilities, so it became to these four. Under the first reign of the Ptolemies, there were four different Ptolemies in which they had reign, and the government system was basically the same. There was the addition of the council called the Sanhedrin. Um, Ptolemy Soter was one that enslaved many Jews on a Sabbath day. They knew that the Jews wouldn't resist on the day of Sabbath, that they wouldn't work. And resisting would be work. So therefore, he came in on a day of Sabbath and enslaved thousands of Jews. He took them back to Egypt for various purposes and reasons. After the Battle of Ipsus, all of that kind of changed and that they were pretty much kind towards the Jews and allowed them to have their governmental structure. Um, It was under Ptolemy Philadelphus that translated the Hebrew Scriptures to Greek, which we call, we refer to as the Septuagint. After... The Ptolemies, the last one died, he left it to his youngest son, which was, he was only five years old. And there was a man by the name Antiochus the Great, who was a Seleucid, which is the yellow area. He saw this as an opportunity to take over the Ptolemies' territory. So he took, he's all in the yellow, and now he's got the green, so he's got Jerusalem and all of Palestine underneath what you would call the Syrian Seleucid reign. And they invaded Egypt and all these other territories and taking Jerusalem. Now, this was the darkest time in this 400 years for Jerusalem. It was a time that it was divided into five sections that we read about in the New Testament that you commonly refer to. And it's a time in which a man by the Antiochus the Great, he was very harsh towards the Jews 
but he let them have their governmental structure in place. A man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes would take control, and he was an absolute terror. Antiochus Epiphanes had plans to go and take Egypt back. He had lost it in war. Um, Egypt had the backing of the Roman Empire. While all this going on in the background, you have the Roman Empire. As you know, historically, they're about to jump on the scene. They've been growing and getting bigger, having, acquiring more land and more wealth and everything else. Antiochus Epiphanes went to go to Egypt and was met by a Roman commander, and he drew a circle around him in the dirt and pretty much told him that he had lost all of his possessions, all of his islands, and everything in Egypt. He had no control over it anymore. He'd lost every bit of it. Antiochus Epiphanes was furious. And when he went back to Jerusalem, he took it out on Jerusalem and he told one of his commanders that to go to Jerusalem and require the Jews to abandon their religion, to adopt the Greek religion. He tore down the walls of Jerusalem. He erected an an altar to Jupiter on top of an altar to God in the temple. He went on to sacrifice a pig and then took the blood from that pig and took it into the most holy of holies and spread that blood all over the wall and all over the temple. He made it illegal for women to have their sons circumcised. And if a woman disobeyed, they would murder that child. And then they would hang that child around the woman's neck and murder the mother. He would force the Jews to eat swine. During that time, their lives were chaotic. They lost, they were stripped of all citizenship. They lost lost their governmental system. And it was nothing but dark days and death for them. The Sanhedrin was a religious development that came out of this time period. We read about the Sanhedrin in the New Testament. It originated and essentially had power over religious and somewhat domestic affairs. It was essentially the Supreme Court for the Jews. There were 71 members, evenly divided amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees, with the the 71st member being the high priest. We read about them a lot in the New Testament. Under the leadership of the high priest Caiaphas, they schemed to have the Lord killed. They schemed with Judas to betray Christ. Um, After being arrested, Jesus was brought before them. Uh, False witnesses were provided by the Sanhedrin against Christ. Peter and John were brought before them and told not to preach and then were beaten and sent off. Stephen was brought before them. Paul was brought before them in Acts chapter 22. And they later devised a plot to have Paul assassinated. You see in there that there was the Sadducees. Also, I remember when I was a kid, I learned a song. I'm not going to sing it. I'll give you the lyrics. I don't want to be a Pharisee because the Pharisees aren't fair, you see. And I don't want to be a Sadducee because, I don't want to, because Sadducees are sad, you see. There, you know that now. Put a tune to that. So the Sadducees were referred to as the righteous one. That's what Sadducees mean. And they were more or less the party of the upper class. The Pharisees were middle, lower class. The Sadducees were the upper class. And they were mostly concerned with temple administration. They only acknowledged the first five books of the Bible. They didn't acknowledge the immortality of the soul. They didn't acknowledge that there was a resurrection. They just said there weren't angels. 
and they were only they were actually more concerned with political over spiritual. In the time of Christ, they became very concerned with events going on around Christ, not because there was any religious thing or any, that he was going to sway the people. What they were concerned about was the Roman Empire coming in and dealing with the problem themselves. So they weren't worried about anything other than the political and not the spiritual. And they were willing to compromise with different cultures whereas the Pharisees wouldn't. They were mostly concerned with the temple, and you had this contrast, as you see throughout the New Testament, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. As a matter of fact, Paul recognized that in Acts chapter 22. It says there, When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brother, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so, so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Paul had a stroke of genius here whenever he recognized all the people in the room, and he could immediately pit them together, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he automatically talked about the resurrection, knowing that that would divide the very room that he was in. You see, the Sadducees were a group of people that they claimed authority by piety and bloodlines, where the Pharisees claimed their authority on teaching from God's word or even the oral law. The Sadducees would be what you would consider the more conservative group of that time, whereas the Pharisees would be a little bit more the progressive group of that time. And so you had these different sects popping up at different times, you had the Pharisees first, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, and all of the face of Jewish religion was beginning to change based upon these different sects and the traditions they accepted, the things, the doctrines they didn't accept, the doctrines they did accept. And so there was this mass confusion as Christ comes onto the scene about all of these things, and Christ provided consistency in the teaching of Word of God that people could see through the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Antiochus Epiphanes in his reign, he had a tradition in which he liked to go to the villages and send a deputy and pretty much force people to eat swine. In one such village, there was a man by the name of Mattathias that refused to eat the swine. The deputy called another man in the village over and pretty much said, see, this is how you do it. Mattathias would kill the deputy and then also the man that ate the swine. And in that moment, a revolt began. Mattathias had three sons, and they began going from village to village, tearing down these uh, idol gods and tearing down these temples. And it seemed as he went from village to village, they began to grow more and more people. And next thing you know, you had a full-out war with the Seleucid Syrian Empire. The problem was the Seleucids had kind of began to shrink because of the Roman Empire. You, we talked about earlier how they showed up in Egypt, so they didn't have that area. And there were other areas that they were beginning to lose, and they were constantly in battle with other places, and there was constant war raging on. And so now you had the Romans coming on the scene, and them to fight over little old Jerusalem was a little bit more difficult for them to do, and they needed to apply their forces to greater battles. And so they had 
maybe what you would refer to as three different campaigns. They weren't very big. They didn't send very many people. And they were able to beat them down. The, the Jews were able to beat, beat back the Syrian Empire, the Seleucid Empire. Now, Mattathias was an older man. He knew that he was, death was coming upon him, so he left everything to Judas. And this is, his name was Judas Maccabeus, and this is what is often turned and referred to as the Maccabean time frame. It only lasted about 75 to 80 years. Maccabeus means hammer. He was Judas the hammer is what his real name was. And him and his brothers established themselves in Egypt, not, not Egypt, I'm sorry, not Egypt, but Judah once again had their independence. But that didn't solve all the problems. You see, there was still this problem with the Seleucid Empire. They would try to come back and overtake everything again. And Judas would appeal to the Roman Empire. But before they could respond, he was killed. So his brother Simon took over it. And then he would be assassinated. Then another brother would take over. And all got all the way to the point of the man named John Hycranus. And John Hycranus kind of brought things under control. And for about 60 years, there was some peace in the land. But not very much. John Hycranus had two grandsons that would kind of take things over. And civil war would break out. So you spent all of this time... And all of these years, under the thumb of all of these nations, and whenever you get your independence, you can't get along well enough to keep it all together. So with civil war breaking out, guess what happened? The Roman Empire saw what was going on and said, you know what, we'll just solve all of this for you. And we'll come in and you're going to be one of our provinces. And this is when the Herods come on the scene. The result of, of this was Pompey showed up in Jerusalem and besieged Jerusalem for three months. They had no supplies, no food, or any of that going in. And they finally essentially gave up. Pompey immediately walked into Jerusalem, into the temple, and walked in the most holy place. Essentially just to say, I'm Roman, I'm here, I'm in control, your God isn't. Over the Jews, with them being now a Roman uh, province, the high priest lost his, essentially, position of royalty in the land. And a man by the name of Herod would be appointed over this province. And he's Herod, the king of the Jews. Early on, Herod, who was only 15 when he was appointed to this, uh, tried to ingratiate himself to the Jews, and he actually did a really good job of it. He married uh, a granddaughter of the high priest. He actually went so far as to spend a lot of money and had a very elaborate temple built for the Jews. But Herod seemed to be a little bit bipolar, I think. Even whenever you read about him in the book of Matthew, he was, there was something not right with him mentally. Um, for all the great things that he did, he would bring tragedy and murder all around him. Um, you think about the people that he murdered, his wife's three brothers. He would then go on to murder his wife. He would then go on to murder his own sons of that wife. 
And so around Herod, there was a lot of death. And this was the Herod that you read about in Matthew chapter 2 when Christ was born, when he heard about this, this new king or this Messiah. And he sent for the three wise men to find him. And when he realized that he essentially had been tricked, what did he do? He had all the children to and under in Bethlehem and along the coastal area. He had them all murdered. And that's how the New Testament raises up the curtain with a man by the name of Herod. With the Roman Empire, there was another sect that kind of came along. There were other smaller sects that came about, but these were the major ones. This one was called, these were called the Zealots. Uh, they were essentially Pharisees who became interested in political freedom. They advocated for the violent overthrow of the Roman Empire. They refused to pay taxes. They thought loyalty to Caesar was sin. They were the ones that incited the revolt, which brought the Roman invasion in 70 AD, which would essentially destroy, have, you would see the, the destruction of Jerusalem. That's familiar because of a man by the name of Simon the Zealot, who was one of Christ's disciples. And I want you to think about something very important for just a moment. One of another of Christ's disciples was a man by the name of Matthew. Matthew would be that man who you would think is a Roman sympathizer because he worked for Rome as a tax collector. And then you had a man by the name of Simon the Zealot who was a follower of Christ, who adhered to the doctrine of murdering people who followed after Caesar who would be a proponent of a murdering someone who collected taxes for Caesar. And I want you to think about these two men on very opposite ends of the spectrum, now united under one cause. And that cause was Jesus Christ. Whenever we look at the New Testament, and we look at what Christ was, only not only in our aspect of our salvation, but the power that he has to unite people. Not based upon blood, not, not based upon bloodlines, not pay, based upon social status, or any of those things that we are all united under one cause. And that was the power that he had. To take two men from opposite ends of the spectrum. And 2,000 years later, he's still doing the same thing. People who in other parts of the world's lives would never intersect or cross. But because of the power of Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have, we intersect in his blood. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Does it really matter that you know the intricacies of everything that went on in between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament? It really doesn't. But what matters is the fulfillment of what God had planned. Paul said, when the fullness of time was come, in the time that God had determined, Christ entered the scene. Ephesians refers to this 
to the same time period as something that was preordained, that it has been set since the foundations of the earth. That all of this was set in place long before it ever happened. And it didn't matter how much chaos happened leading up to all that point in time, it was still going to happen because God had preordained it and God said it was going to happen. that the bartering and trading back and forth of nations, death and all of that was not going to stop it. That he had a plan for mankind, and that plan came through Jesus Christ. I hope this lesson has been beneficial for you this morning. I hope looking at that big picture kind of time frame from beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament, it encourages faith. It encourages our faith to know that God was always in control, that no matter how much man tried to change things, God was still in control. And his plan was not going to change. He has a plan for you. He wants to see you in heaven. He wants salvation for you. His plan for mankind was salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have not taken the opportunity to submit to that blood, we can help you with that this morning. We can help you with that in the waters of baptism. We have water readily available. I realize that sometimes in our life that we seem to think we're in control and that our plans are a little bit more important than what God wants from us. And sometimes we struggle with that. We struggle with the world and all the things in the world, and we let God's plan for us get out of control. We can help with that. We can offer up prayers on your behalf. If you would find yourself in either of these groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.